Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts. And I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. My guest today is Dr. Jeanette Scheid. Dr. Scheid is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and associate professor at Michigan State University. She provides clinical services in community mental health, has a long-standing interest in child trauma, child welfare, and systems of care. She provides non-clinical consultation to the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services Children's Services Agency. She also sits on the Michigan American Academy of Pediatrics Developmental and Mental Health Committee as a collaborative partner. She is very active in the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, or ACAP, and is a co-chair of the Committee on Child Maltreatment and Violence. She is a delegate to ACAP Assembly representing Michigan. She is also an all-around amazing person, and I'm so glad to be able to have her join us today. Hey, Jeanette, how are you? I'm good, Leah. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm so grateful that you are spending some time with me this morning. I so appreciate it. So you and I kind of crossed paths. I'm not even sure when. But it has I actually been, do. It was the you remember 2012. Yes, <laughs> because that's when I started in the role of medical consultant, and I think at the time you were um, you were either president elect or I, you were in an active role in the Michigan chapter of the AAP, and so I wanted to reach out to um, our partner medical organizations and sort of begin thinking about collaboration. And so you were, I think, one of the first people um, in, in that, in the medical consultants role. That is right. Yeah, I got involved in the Michigan AAP because I wanted to join their mental health committee and there wasn't one. So I was a committee of one. So that was probably how we got connected. That's, uh, I had forgotten that piece. Well, tell me a little bit about why you chose child psychiatry and, you know, some of the mentors or people that impacted you along the way. Yeah. So actually, when I first went to medical school, I was planning on um, on moving towards a specialty in pediatric hemonc. And I, I think that I always knew that I wanted to work with kids. All of the reasons about that aren't clear to me. I will say that I am the fifth of six children, and my oldest sister started having babies when I was 12, and I was like the chief babysitter, and I, I really always enjoyed, you know, being around children, working with children, and when I, you know, when I had determined, golly, back probably in middle school that I was, that I wanted to move towards a career in medicine, that part was pretty clear to me. I'm less clear in retrospect on why I wanted to pursue um, hematology oncology. Um, I think that it's a really scientifically fascinating sort of topic. And it also certainly seemed like it was like helping kids and families who were dealing with cancer was certainly an important thing. Um, And so I pursued that with my career. Actually, I decided to get doctoral training in cancer research uh, because I wanted to be able to contribute to the science as well as contributing to the health and well-being and working with kids and families. And, And it was, but it wasn't until I got to the clinical part of medical school, which for me was delayed because of the doctoral work. And my very first rotation was psychiatry, which I think was, I mean, I think it made sense for the school administrators because you usually try to give green medical students, you know, sort of a less high stakes rotation to start with so that they can kind of get their feet wet and get used to the hospital systems, all that kind of stuff. And I still remember walking onto that unit, the first sitting down at morning report 
And it was just hearing story after story after story about the last 24 hours in the lives of people since the psychiatric team had finished rounds the day before. And, um, and I was kind of hooked at that. Sometime later, I realized that back even when I was in elementary school, you know when you can buy those scholastic book service books? Oh, I love those. Yeah. I had picked, I had picked out a book. Um, called A Circle of Children, and it was actually made into a TV movie. And it, it, it is about a young woman who goes to sort of volunteer at a school, a day school for kids with developmental disabilities. And I can remember, after I thought about it, I remembered thinking as I was reading that book, it's like, I want to be a doctor and work with kids like that. And then it was poofed, gone out of my head until I got interested in psychiatry. And once I got interested in psychiatry, then it was a natural fit to sort of want to pursue child and adolescent psychiatry. So I think when it comes the sort of the first person that I think of as a mentor in the course of making that career switch was actually um, the the faculty at MSU who was my my thesis advisor for my doctoral work, um, you know, which was really kind of amazing. Um, he, um, you know, sometimes advisors are kind of, I mean, they're so passionate about their own field that having somebody want to make a shift is hard for them. Um, but Justin um, was totally amazing. I mean, I walked into his office and I was in the middle of my research stuff, still finishing up my research. And I said, Justin, I think I have to transition over to psychiatry. And his, his, the first words out of his mouth were, well, we need to get some people together to help you kind of figure out that transition. And so he pulled together one of my thesis um, committee members, who is a pediatric infectious disease person, but he also was, he called the chair of psychiatry at MSU at that time and a few other people. And, and it was like, let's sit down with Jeanette and figure out what she needs to do to figure out this transition. I, it was completely amazing. Um, I have talked with lots of colleagues who do research and clinical research, and I have yet to hear a response that was that kind of generous and inclusive. Um, so that was pretty amazing. I love that. I, I would say a shout out to any residents or, you know, fellows that are, might be listening and that it's okay to change your mind and yes. that you may not always know that what kind of doctor you want to be and it's okay yes. to want to be a different kind of doctor. Yes. Yeah. Or not even a doctor at all if that happens. Yeah. Yeah. I used to tell and I still do sometimes um, when I'm around medical students on rotation and because I spent some time retrospectively thinking about this career shift and I, I usually tell them a few things. It's like, first of all, you know, think about during your rotations in medical school, what are the things that you're so excited about that you're willing to go home and read about, even though you're dead tired? You know, truthfully, I found it hard to get terribly excited about the intricacies of renal function. And, you know, I just, I mean, I wanted to do well, I wanted my patients to do well, but it, it wasn't, you know, something I felt connected to. The second one is, is look around you and look at your colleagues, um, because there is some personality assorting um, during the course of, of thinking about medical careers. And then thirdly, think about the aspects of, of that day-to-day -day existence. And are there any like big deal breakers? Are there things that you would that you would need to do on a day-to-day -day basis that you just can't imagine being able to keep up. And I mean, to me, those are three pretty decent things to think about, um, you know, at least for, you know, people more junior in their careers. So. Well, I think that's really good advice. And then, so I know you still work with students and see patients in a clinic and then you got work, uh, got involved at the state level, the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, and you're the medical consultant to the welfare system. I mean, how, how on earth did that happen? Well, it's kind of a curious question. So I, so from the time during residency training, I actually, one of my rotations was, um, an elective rotation was in um, a residential facility that was actually a lot of the kids in that facility were part of the child welfare system. 
and it was a, it was a, it was a, an interesting partnership between the university and, and department where I was doing my residency training and a couple of private nonprofit agencies in the greater Pittsburgh community. And so I, I was, I was the, you know, um, working under a, a, physician, the, the attending physician for months and months on that rotation. Um, and it actually, um, it did kind of fuel my interest in some of the issues related to trauma and complex presentations and kids and that kind of stuff. And after residency, partly because of those connections, I spent a few years in Pittsburgh working um, in a private nonprofit agency that was one of the partners on that residential service. And that was another place where there was, you know, they had group homes for kids from child welfare, shelter services for kids in child welfare, a whole bunch of sort of clinical and shelter services um, for that population, plus um, women with substance use disorders um, who had little kids. Um, and so there was a, a post post-acute um, sort of long-term residential facility that women could bring their kids to. So when I got, when I came back to Michigan to be on faculty, I was already interested in issues related to, um, you know, trauma, exposure, abuse, neglect, public systems, and that sort of thing. I ended up actually coming to the attention of folks in child welfare because of some different work that I had done um, relating to Michigan's, um, um, the mental health systems wraparound process earlier in the, in the first couple of years being back at MSU. And so when I heard about the opportunity to be um, in this role of consultant, um, I was really kind of excited about it. And so that's how it came about. And, it, and you know, eyes were dotted and T's were crossed in early 2012. And I've been doing that work since. So, Well, you and I partnered on a, a learning collaborative in foster care systems. And that was that was really interesting. I mean, I didn't realize some of the the rules and all the specifics that the expectations that we had. I mean, I know yeah. we saw foster care kids and took yeah. care of them, but I just didn't appreciate all the nuances. And I didn't know yeah. any of my colleagues in the welfare system, like the right. the, the caseworkers. And yeah. so we brought all those people together and had conversation and it was very yeah. enlightening and fun. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's funny, Lee. I still use you without naming you specifically. Um, I do a, a monthly uh, training for um, foster care workers, CPS workers, adoption um, workers, as part of their an initial training when they are um, they come on as employees. Um, and I, I talk about the um, the importance of understanding the other folks' point of view. And I actually sort of, I remember our conversation where I was saying to you, you know, it's surprising to me how many doctors don't know that foster parents aren't empowered to consent for mental health medications. And you looked at me like, they're not? <laughs> and because I had, I had, and because you, I mean, you know, that was only a couple of years ago and you have, you know, a number of years of experience and you have been kind of interested in and, and working with um, kids um, with, you know, I mean, more complex issues in the child welfare system, et cetera. And so I made the assumption that you knew that and that other people didn't and you didn't know it either. And so I say that every, practically every month when I do this training, I say to, um, uh, to the the young child welfare staff that I'm that I'm um, training um, in the space of an hour to cover a lot of information that you know you cannot assume because that is one of the things that um, that I have I mean I think that I've been aware of all the way through training but that everybody comes to every situation wearing their own their own experience. You know, we talk about that, that we certainly talk about that lately a lot when we're thinking about um, diversity and equity and inclusion, but it's true even when it doesn't have to do about those topics. So a pediatrician walks into a room with their knowledge and expertise and their focus on that child. A child welfare worker approaches from a different angle. Psychiatry approaches from a different angle. And I, and I think that we really struggle sometimes to take just a step back 
and say, what do my partners, how do my partners view this situation? And how can we um, try to make sure that we're sort of sharing a view, you know, uh, if it, you know, like a 360 view of these situations. Well, so. I think we don't even appreciate, I mean, like you said, you just know your piece. And yeah. so, you know, honestly, when you said, you know, a foster care parent can't be the one that directs medication, but, you know, oftentimes they're the ones bringing the kids in absolutely, and complaining about the kids' behaviors, which are sure. awful because they're scared kids. And I didn't know that. And right. so, and then I thought, well, I never see the bio parents. How on earth am I supposed to get their consent? And I do think that we a bit demonize the bio parents and, and granted some awful things sometimes happen, but you know, again, that's another perspective that they're often not in the room and we forget yeah. that we're trying to reunify these parents. And I think, um, yeah. Moira Salaji in one of the first episodes talked about kids in foster care and how regardless of what has happened, those kids want to be back with their parents and, you know, trying to figure out how to do that. I mean, what, what's yeah. your, what have some of your experiences been with children and bio families and trying to rebuild that? Yeah. Well, it, it certainly is variable, partly because, you know, you have to take each individual and family unit as a unique circumstance to a certain extent, right? Because everybody's experience is, I mean, we share a common human experience, but the specifics are unique. So I certainly have, um, I have experienced, um, you know, anywhere from the, what I would consider to be the sort of the, this is not probably the best word, but the but the mildest circumstances that would result in family separation. Um, and, 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 you know, it, it certainly could be, you know, I'm thinking of a particular circumstances where perhaps, you know, a family unit had been, uh, and that, uh, that I recall had been functioning relatively well. And then say a parent, there's a, the, the death of a parent that was uh, the expected or unexpected. It doesn't matter. That, death and the loss of that partnership throws the other parent for a loop, they struggle with sort of continuing to function in any kind of a role, whether it's the adult role and meeting meeting the financial needs of the family or meeting the emotional needs of the youngster. And at some point, that person comes to the attention of child welfare. Um, and it may be to the level where that family is separated for a while, those, the youngsters are removed. And, you know, if you think of that circumstance and, 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 you know, how, what are the many ways that we could consider sort of trying to provide support to that remaining parent to transition into the role of a single parent and the, and the sole head of household, you know, how can we do that? And, you know, and certainly there are for, for, you know, you know, experiences that are much more severe that include, you know, significant um, physical harm to the youngster or physic, you know, like, uh, or a significant lack of, of supervision that leads to, to physical harm. And so thinking about, but thinking about, you know, it's almost like a, I would imagine, and I do think that this happens in our, you know, I think this is part of the decision-making in our child welfare system and in CPS. It's almost like a, it's like a, an analysis, a chain analysis, a strengths, you know, a strengths, um, weaknesses analysis of, of it, you know, to develop a strategic plan. I mean, it's a parallel process that everybody uses for all, whenever problems occur. Um, and so I do think that that's part of it. And so I think that, that while, while that's happening, again, acknowledging everybody's role in that, like, and reaction to that, you know, what is going to be that youngsters, the, that youngster individually or in a sibling group, what is going to be their reaction? How are they going to navigate that separation, even if the circumstances leading to the separation were problematic? You know, how can we discover what will be the most benefit to allow um, parents to sort of regain their footing and or, um, you know, like develop skills that they didn't have before that will allow them to stand as that 
that that parent and support for the, the their youngsters. Um, and I think that just that that has to be that has to be done. I'm gonna say so. This isn't something that I read a lot about. The other thing that I think, because I have also seen it, is that I do think that that sometimes all of us kind of approach this in sort of an all or nothing way, meaning that that you know if a parent cannot be a parent, then they also can't have contact. And I don't think that that's always true. I think that it happens informally in in families without you know coming to the attention of child welfare at all, where a parent who has significant has some barrier to being the decider for their youngster doesn't mean that they necessarily can't be a part of that youngster's life. And so I also think that thinking through that process, which I also know people do, but sometimes it's just kind of like, you know, if it can't be this way, then it's got to be no way at all. Well, we get so little information, honestly, and oftentimes it's the foster parent who's bringing that. And of course, without knowing that information and Mm -hmm. knowing the trauma history, it's often hard to figure out the kid. And of course, you know, one of the big things is these children often have very aggressive behaviors, difficult behaviors, they're not sleeping well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we're quick to try and, um, you know, label that. And, And a lot of these kids have psychiatric disorder labels, mm-hmm. which may in fact be trauma? I mean, can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, is it sure. is it just that that population has more psychoses and bipolar disorder? Yeah. And, you know, that's a hard question to, I mean, it's a hard question to answer in big brushstroke terms um, because it's complicated. And so I'm going to answer it in broad brushstroke terms, but I'm going to also really put a, a, you know, like a cheering section in for building in some of the systems to address some of the gaps that you mentioned that you meeting a kid for the first time who's in foster care with a foster parent who may not have known them that long also, and without that background information, it's like, how could anybody possibly do a good job of trying to figure out if the emotions and behaviors that are problematic or painful or not functional for that youngster, what's the best set of explanations for in what way are they impacted by the experiences that they've had that that are that are probably just traumatic by definition, although again, you know, there's always a matter of degree. How can you find out things like what is the what is the family background of that youngster? I mean, that's stuff that that I as a child psychiatrist, I'm asking, you're probably asking it too when you're trying to do an assessment. It's like if I'm meeting a kid and and I'm concerned because they have some symptoms of depression or anxiety, I'm also asking who else in the family has struggled with this? I mean, family history is so critically important to good medical care. And we and, just often don't have that. Piece. And you don't have it. So, I mean, that is one of the things that I think that we need to continue, A, acknowledging what we don't know in a situation. It's almost like it's, you know, in... um in motivational interviewing, it's like the first step is recognizing there's a problem. Um, but, you know, certainly, you know, sort of being able to acknowledge this is the information based on based on what I've done so far that I'm like, you know, uh, a pediatrician can hear the wheeze, right? I mean, you know that there's a wheeze. What you don't know is, you know, what this kid's history of wheezing has been. And so what today's wheeze means. And it's true for mental health problems as well. So for certain, I mean, we know that that exposure to neglect and abuse stands as kind of an independent risk factor for all sorts of mental health issues, depression, anxiety, uh, trauma-related anxiety, like acute stress disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder, general kinds of things that I, you know, like like general challenges with emotional and behavioral regulation that aren't easily definable. But we also know that other risk factors are in the middle of as well. And so that's where, you know, knowing if we don't know the family history and how are we going to get that information is critically important to to sort of moving forward with a confident, with reasonable confidence in terms of interventions. 
Well, and sometimes kids come to us on multiple medications, psychotropic medications. I mean, sometimes five or six, and they sometimes even really young kids. And we may be the ones that somehow get in the position of having to prescribe those. And sometimes we have the information. I think it's getting better. Sometimes we don't. They may be handoffs from community mental health. And then we don't know, like, do I just continue these forever? Is there an opportunity mm-hmm. to deprescribe? Can you talk a little bit about polypharmacy and, and yeah, yeah. that challenge? And I, and I am going to say that this is not unique to the child welfare population. Actually, I've gotten email um, correspondence about, uh, about and, you know, there was some uh, uh, folks who just recently published an article um, and and specifically talking about an increase in multiple medication use. Um, I think it's based on Medicaid claims data. I haven't read it yet, so I don't know whether it, you know, if they even tried to parse out whether youngsters were in our foster care systems or child welfare systems or not. But it is, it is sort of an issue. And so, and so, I, I sometimes tell people that that probably more supportable kind of um, reasons for that are at least certainly in child welfare, but even in in you know in, in families and circumstances, uh, other kinds of the social determinants of health kind of stuff. That kids just sometimes present with more complicated sets of problems. I mean, sometimes youngsters have. ADHD symptoms and mood symptoms and anxiety symptoms. And, and it may, and in part because kids are developmentally a moving target, it can be really hard to know if there is a single unifying diagnosis that will like sort of manage, that will explain all of that stuff, or if they actually do have more than one thing going on at the same time. And so, you know, when when picking up the baton in what is usually a relay race of our systems of care, if you're the person picking up the baton, I mean, it can be really hard to know that. So I guess I would say, and there are, and the other thing is that it wasn't until probably the last five or six years that people have actually started to talk more explicitly about this idea. And it's been de-prescribing as one term that started out in the geriatrics literature, where I think also the problems of multiple medications and interactions are kind of um, established. So I think that actually there is, I mean, the first piece is, is, and again, this takes work and it takes, um, it takes a team in a primary care office. And it also takes teamwork and partnership from the people who are handing off. Probably the first step would be again, to take a step back and look at the history. When were these medications started? Is there one, you know, it's like, and what can, can anybody tell you what the reasons were for that? Um, Sometimes kids are able to tell you, sometimes family members are able to tell you, sometimes the records are able to tell you. And then, then I think the other, so, uh, and is there evidence that any of these medications have had a particularly beneficial, you know, it's been beneficial for the youngster, in which case, if, if they're, you know, those would probably be the ones that you'd want to like hang with for a while. Are there ones where it's like, nobody is able to tell you whether adding that medication provided any benefit. That might be the kind of medication that you might want to start backing away from. Um, and then, and you know, then the question is if there's more than one that you might want to back away from um, and, and, you know, all other things being equal, I think that most folks would say in this day and age that you try to start backing away based on level of risk, you know, it's like sort of what are, what are the short and long-term risks of any individual medication? So we know, for example, that our second generation antipsychotic medications that are used for mood and behavioral stabilization and you know as well as for more clear cut reasons like a, a diagnosed bipolar disorder or a diagnosed um, a schizophrenia or even psychotic symptoms um, if you know but they also carry you know reasonably you know they they carry some liability so if there isn't a great reason to do to have that medication on board um and there's another medication with a lower level of risk maybe trying to take away the medication with a higher risk i guess the other thing that i would say is that i think you know we always talk about start low go slow on the way up i think that that 
to a certain extent, you have to do that on the way down um, because you do have to be able, especially when you're less sure of, of what may have been the, the rationale for starting it in the first place. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. And I honestly have to say, not that I felt like I was cavalier, but I think when the atypicals first came out, they seemed like it was going to be this panacea miracle, like it was going to fix everything. And I don't know that we really appreciated all the long-term side effects. And for those really reactive kids, it it mm-hmm. seemed like it made sense. And, and I yeah. do think for some it did. Um, yeah. But I know with monitoring some kids, like with Risperdal and, and looking at prolactins, sometimes I've just said, we, we need to wean this off or when the kids get stable, like, yeah. you know, uh, you know, even kids with more straightforward depression, anxiety, like, you know, mm-hmm. we've been treating you for a year, year and a half and things, you know, maybe we can consider decreasing. Yeah. I'm always trying to figure out the time, like, well, you just started school or we're in the middle of a pan- pandemic. Is this the best time? Yeah. You know, summer always seems like a good time, except not this summer. No, not this summer. So yeah, and so it is so dependent upon, you know, it depends upon the clinical problem. So you raise depression. Depression is typically an episodic kind of an illness, right? I mean, you get depression at some point, depression in people, not everybody, because some people have very treatment-resistant or chronic depression, but, um, but depression gets better at some point. And so, yes, at some point, I mean, I think, I, the, the rule of thumb that I have I have learned and adhered to is, and I think you even mentioned it, I mean, if somebody has been really good for like going on a year, um, then yes, I think that considering with the caveats about whether it's a good time and if they are the kind of person, because you can't tell this in advance, if uh, they will have recurrent symptoms, what would the impact of that be in a time frame? Um, and so, yes. And so after a long block of time of remission of symptoms, dropping back for aggressive behavior, there's actually a whole set of um, consensus standards on treatment of aggressive behavior. Um, and one of the principles of that is that across the board, because we know that psychosocial and behavioral interventions for disruptive behavior, so things like the ears and parent management training, it's an organ model PMTO, um, all interaction therapy. I mean, there are some established therapies that that reduce disruptive behavior. And so even if you're using medication for significant aggression um, that is tolerable um, in a setting, it should always be done in concert with behavioral behavioral interventions. And the, the consensus reg, um, recommendations call for a reassessment every six months mm-hmm. of whether medication continues to be necessary. See, and this is the kind of thing that that partnering between pediatrics and child psychiatry is really helpful. I mean, I just in my head think of lots of kids and, you know, should I have decreased it sooner or, you know, started to wean? I, I think partly it gets really good and you don't want to mess with it and everybody's, you know, holding their breath. Yes. And I yeah. do think some things like anxiety seem to be a little bit more persistent, although, mm-hmm. you know, if you can really get them to do CBT, they can get a handle. But I know some folks with anxiety, it's, it's really a lifelong disorder. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. but, I, and I really liked, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Stephen Stahl, you know, he's a psychopharmacologist mm-hmm. um, and wrote a book on the essentials of psychopharmacology. And I love because he's got this whole, it's, it's, first of all, it's easy to read. And he's got this whole thing about how to wean medications and some tips and pearls. So I'll I'll put that um, in the show notes. And yeah. maybe I can also put the link to the consensus statement on aggression. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, there's a couple of those. It's um, and I if you don't have them, I can get them to you. But okay. Uh, but yes, it is. It is important to have some guidance. It's like especially if this is not something that you do day in day out. You know, I mean, I know that that. 
from as a medical student working with, with, you know, pediatricians is like, I know that there's parts of your day-to-day stuff that you have so in your head, like, like, like you can look at a kid and know what dose of amoxicillin they need to be on Um, (laughs) because you've done it so many times. It's like, you can look at that kid and say, that's a 200 milligram every eight hours kid, you know? Um, but there's lots of this other stuff that, that, that you wouldn't know unless you do it all of the time. Um, well, and I think psychotropic medications, you know, it's, it's a lot trickier. I mean, there's not like, oh, this, I mean, I think there's dosing guidelines, but you know, it's not as clear cut as, you know, when you have strep throat, you use X number milligram per kilo per day for 10 days and you're good to go. And it's not that way with psychiatric things. I've said this a lot in different kinds of training because it's also a matter of, because I do, I get the questions. It's like, well, can you diagnose bipolar disorder in a six-year-old? Well, the DSM doesn't have a lower limit. It doesn't say you can't diagnose this before six years old. So it's always a matter of level of confidence. And I think there's lots of different parts of medicine where we have more or less confidence. And so, you know, strep throat is an excellent example. We have a great diagnostic test. We have centuries of medication intervention um, with some amendments over time. That's like that's like 99% medicine, I call it. I think that things, I think that mental health, especially children's mental health, is nowhere near that, both from a diagnostic standpoint and from a treatment knowledge um, standpoint. And, you know, and it's not just psychiatry or child psychiatry. I think that, that you know, things like autoimmune disorders because of the way they present is another area that it's really hard to sort of, it's nowhere near like what we think of as strep throat medicine. Um, so it's just the reality of, of, of what we do. Absolutely. Well, and we've kind of talked about this a little bit, um, you know, this idea that these collaborative relationships and the more that I talk to you just now, I'm, you know, again, it's like, wow, I'm learning something new today from you. Um, how, how do we build these relationships between, you know, ourselves and our psychiatry colleagues? I know, you know, on a, previous podcast, I talked with um, Dr. Joanna Quigley, who works with one of the consultative programs here in Michigan. And we've built some relationships that way. But what what are some other thoughts that you have about how we get to know each other? Because, you know, without really putting lots of energy into it, sometimes that's hard. Yeah. I, I don't have a great answer for that because I do think that it's hard to, it's hard to do any of that stuff. It all requires energy. It all requires time. So I guess I, I, I think a couple of things. I think that, and this is something that I usually like sort of push with residents when I'm talking with them as well. I, I, I usually say, I really don't think it's that much energy to get somebody to, to ask somebody to sign consents for release of information. And I actually think that that should so much be a default setting across our systems. You know, it's like, I, you know, when I'm seeing, when I'm going to see a kid in community mental health, it is, I want to know, I want to get at least some records from the primary care doc. I want to get their most recent annual exam I want to get, you know, if there's been more recent records than that, just to sort of get the physical lay of the land. It helps me understand things. I also want to have permission to send my records back to them. And I know that sometimes that drives, I'm sure it drives pediatricians crazy because sometimes psychiatric notes are kind of longer, but I don't expect anybody to read my whole note. I mean, I think that if somebody just read the recommendations, um, you know, and I think that so it is my default setting. I, you know, I routinely, as long as I have, you know, a, a partner to send it to, I send my medication review visits and stuff to the, to the primary care provider. That stuff I don't think takes that much energy. We do have an already existing system of moving information around. I mean, I do think it's important, especially in mental health and because of the concerns about that being kind of a specialized area that requires more kind of confidentiality 
that would be a whole different conversation in and of itself. But I don't think it's, a, it, you know, it's not, it's not that hard. It's like part of when folks come into care. And I also think it requires us to be teachers of, of people. You know, it requires us to sort of say to families, why is this important? Why is it so important for us to have open communication um, between and not just between child psychiatry and primary care, all, you know, all specialties? Because I think that if you if you build up some of that automatic transfer, you know, it's like, again, if, if you don't have to look at it every time, but if you have a question about how a kid is presenting and you've gotten my notes um, and they're in the record somewhere, you can scan them quickly and say, oh. All of a sudden, this makes sense. And then then I think that after that, you know, I think that we have to, I mean, I, I do think that we have to put the energy into finding a way sometimes to talk with each other. I just had to do that a week ago um, for a youngster where there was some question about um, about vital signs and changes in vital signs with medications and whether or not, you know, medications, this, we were going to have to make some changes. Um, I don't think there's any way around that, but I think if you build it on a platform of freer exchange of information and, and, and describing to kids and families why that's so important, um, I think that's a decent start. I think, plus it's more fun. I mean, I love that I've gotten to know you. I mean, it's just, you know, it makes it easier for me because now I have somebody I could call and say, you know, Hey, Jeanette, I've got a, I've got a quick question or another thing is, the, the more times I've, t- I talk with you about something specifically now, the next time I know that piece and I can build off of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so and I think I learned from psychiatry, that. I wish, I mean, I do think the other thing that's a little bit interesting about the way that medical practice has evolved. I do think that there has been this sort of separate spot for psychiatric medicine that I think that, that I, and I also kind of talk with residents about this. I mean, I think that because that has happened, it is in some respects on us and on our mental health systems to be more open um, to getting questions from people, you know, it's like, and to be more open to asking questions of people, because that's how you do, you know, I mean, in, in some of the places that I've worked, I mean, it hasn't been, you know, I haven't known hardly any of the primary care docs in, in some of the communities that I've worked, but when I've known like one of them or two of them, that is the thing like you talked about when you were talking with Joanna Quigley are so important. But I also just think that I wish that we had a better opportunity to sort of to actually meet people in our local communities. Hang out. Yeah. You know, so that is, that is a, a thing that I wish that we could that we could build. You know? We did do something when I was the medical director for behavioral health for our hospital, you know, and we have a lot of psychiatrists, but there just wasn't a lot of connection. Some were private, some were in community mental health, all these different settings. And the hospital, we kind of threw a dinner and we invited, I literally looked up every psychiatrist in the phone book and we just got together and had a conversation about kind of this very thing about accessibility and making making friends and connections. And some of them said they had never met each other. So mm-hmm. I, I felt like it was kind of like isolated and lonesome. And so I think anything we can do to yeah. bring yeah. friends into the sandbox. Yeah. Um, am I allowed to put in a plug? Of so- course. Um, so building on, you mentioned the learning collaborative event um, that you spearheaded in Kalamazoo County um, that then led to a similar learning collaborative event in County and another one in Isabella County that was led by the Michigan chapter. And that project actually led to um, uh, going statewide with a similar model and a project called Fostering Health Partnerships um, that just actually just completed after a couple of years of making it all the way through Michigan. But I guess, and, and I haven't quite figured this out yet because I, I don't know, I, I don't really know how, how much value comes from material that's available on the web. But I will say that, that it's, it's got to be good to have some 
So, I mean, in our Department of Health and Human Services um, website, um, we we do have a couple of places. Um, one is called Fostering Mental Health, which focuses a lot on some of the not so much specific about mental health diagnosis, but more about systems and people who do the work and that kind of stuff. And we're expanding that into a broader view on child well-being, which is one of the three linchpins of child welfare, permanency, safety, well-being, the interconnected linchpins. Um, and then all, you know, the, the, the work that came out of the fostering health partnerships is actually captured in a website. Um, by that same title. If you Google it, it shows up. Um, and so it has information for, you know, like information for both healthcare providers and child welfare personnel. It has some information from our, from our state and federal resources like the AAP, like the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, like Michigan's um, autism services, I mean, that, that range, um, and, you know, some other resources as well. Um, and so hopefully that is, again, another way of, you know, making information available to people um, that sometimes, if you know, that they might find useful. Um, so I think continuing to build that pathway of communication as well. And we can share that that link as well. Um, so I'll put that in there. Well, Jeanette, thank you so much for your time. I did want to end with a fun question. If you could go back and talk to yourself as a resident, what would you tell a younger you? I guess I would, I would say a couple of things, and some of this has nothing to do with child psychiatry and some of it has to do with my upbringing. But I would say never... Never accept the answer no when you want to get something done unless you've heard it from three different people at three different spots in whatever hierarchy you're in. Um, And then it's not necessarily no, it just means that you may have to sort of figure out a different way to get something accomplished. So it's an opportunity to be creative. And I guess the other thing is not to be afraid to name what and when you don't know stuff. Um, because there is, because information is changing all the time and we don't, we don't know everything. There's lots that we don't know. And the third, I guess, is, is I think really, really cultivate your, your interest in, and capacity to be a teacher. I truly believe that as physicians, one of our most, our most valuable roles to the folks, our colleagues, and to the kids and families um, that that we work with is our capacity to teach um, and our willingness to do that and, and 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 taking the time to do that. Well, thank you. And I'm hoping that, you know, these podcast episodes, it's very interesting. I've had lots of different guests and there's a lot of overlap between you know, because we're all in this for kids. And, mm-hmm. um, but I think just one of them is just fueling your passion and following that and mm-hmm. um, doing the right thing for kids and families. And, and that needs to be our guidepost. So with that, I appreciate your time, wish you well, and look forward to when we can actually get together and sit and chat for a while. Sounds like such fun. And it was, it was a great time. So Thanks. You are welcome. And thanks so much again. Oh my goodness. I love Jeanette so much. She is so much fun, so smart, and just an all around amazing individual. I'm going to just highlight a couple of things that she mentioned. The first being that she was propelled to do work for children because of a book in her childhood, A Circle of Children. She didn't really know it at the time, but perhaps it underpinned why she chose the field. So a couple of words to residents. One is, it's okay to change your mind and change tracks. If what you're pursuing isn't really a good fit, there's lots of other choices. The other is, step outside the hospital and clinic walls and look for experiences in other settings. Dr. Scheid mentioned working in a residential facility that was really a pivotal piece in why she chose to go into child psychiatry. And 
She also talked about working in the nonprofit sector. So look for opportunities outside of medicine to really kind of enhance your perspective on the world. We talked about psychiatric disorders in children in the welfare system and that we have to keep in mind that trauma and anxiety can look like a lot of different things. What we think might be psychosis might be dissociation and a protective thing that kids are going through. So be careful when you're using diagnostic terms and also when prescribing medications. Polypharmacy is problematic, particularly in this population. We also talked about deprescribing. So when is it okay to stop medications? She had some really good suggestions. One is make sure you look at the history of why the medication was prescribed in the first place, when it was started, why, and then was the medication helpful? Were they benefiting? Because if not, it's probably okay to discontinue. Look at the risk profile. If there are significant side effects for a particular medication, maybe that's one to start with. And the adage that you start low, go slow, would be the same when you're weaning medications. Go slow. Her last question about if you could go back and talk to yourself as a resident, what would you tell a younger you? I loved her answer. One is follow your passion, read about the topic that you're interested, and that's probably the topic that you want to, the field you want to pursue. Number two, look at the colleagues around you. Are these people that you want to work with? Are these the people that inspire you to be in that particular field? And three, are there any deal breakers that would be a factor in practicing a particular field? She mentioned that you should never accept the answer no unless three people in three different spots in your institution say no. And then you should still look at why you're being told no and maybe go back and do it again. Number two, it's okay not to know. And that's really important, I think, as well. And number three, cultivate the interest and capacity to be a teacher to both our parents and our colleagues. I think that's really great advice. Collaboration is an underpinning to everything we do. It takes time and energy. A simple thing would be to ask for releases so that as a primary care physician, you could talk to the psychiatrist and therapist and do that on the front end. And then look for opportunities to be friends and do projects together. Seems simple, but at the end of the day, it's all about networking and relationships. Thank you again for your time. I hope you found some interesting and helpful information on today's episode. Please share and leave a five-star review if you enjoyed this. And as always, take good care of yourselves and be safe. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are, and I so appreciate your time. If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I would love to hear from you and welcome all feedback, ideas, and suggestions for future episodes. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then, when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.